questions around my work in general focus more on the content and not on the form. And I do see myself as a writer first and foremost. That's the thing that I was doing before activism. That was the thing I was doing before feminism, before anti-racism. And part of the reason that my work is what it is is because I have a real passion for writing. You know, I take a lot of pride in being able to turn out a good sentence. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out Mopad. how to do life. Mopad. But it turns out Mopad. nobody knows Mopad. This episode is me chatting to Renny Edolage, which I think is um so surreal and great and wonderful. Renny Edolage is an icon? Oh, is I don't know, is icon more like is that more fashion? I don't know. What's the word? World famous author? You know, um <laughs> Powerhouse Maverick. I don't I don't know what the how do you even describe Renny Edolage, if you don't know, she's the author behind Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which is a book that if you haven't read it yet, you should, definitely should. We all should, all the time. <laughs> I have it on a loop. It's so good. She's so good. And I'm so, so happy we finally did this. I was, um, I so two years ago, when I was in Edinburgh during the French, doing my show Dead Baby Frog, I got a message, it must have been on Twitter, from Renier Lodge and I I was I had to like check three times, be like, is this really is it really her asking to come and see my show? And I was so nervous. I mean I had stage fright that entire month, so I was always nervous, but it was like an extra layer of nerves because oh my god, Renier Lodge. And um she afterwards asked me to come to her or not asked me, but invited me to her book talk at the Edinburgh Book Festival, which I'm going to this year with with my book. Very exciting. And I mean, because it was Edinburgh, because I was suffering so much from stage fright, I just never went. And it's Edinburgh, like each minute takes an hour because everything's happening all the time. And, you know, it's, I, I, I regretted it. I was so sad that I didn't make it. And I was just like, ah, this is bullshit. Like, of course I should have gone. And, ugh. and sometimes you just really anchor with your own mental health for taking you away from things like that. So I always felt like I blew it. I blew it with Renny Adolage. I blew it with her. God damn it. And so I was really, really happy that she wanted to do it. And uh, that she didn't hate me forever, <laughs> basically. And there was someone, there were nerves as well doing this, like having this chat with her because like she's been interviewed by, like she's been interviewed by Emma Watson. She's been uh, interviewed by Chimamanda Adichie. She's been, she's this, there's no huge name in like within feminism and activism who who hasn't interviewed her, and I knew that she has done so much stuff, and I just didn't want her to be bored. That was my main thing. I just really didn't want her to be bored, and I was I just really wanted to ask her questions that she hasn't already answered, or I wanted, you know, I wanted her to feel comfortable, and I wanted her to just have like a nice time because I know that. I mean, and my activism, I, f I mean, it's very, it's different to hers, of course, because I'm uh, privileged in quite a lot of ways. And so, so I, I mean, but, but even, I mean, for me, doing any kind of press is the worst because people are the worst 
so like journalists and doing interviews it's just you get so bored of the same question so I didn't want to I didn't want it to be bored so I hope I hope she wasn't and I'm really happy with the chat we had uh I have to say especially at the very end that made me so happy and so excited and I also have to say the extra bit the extra um snippet which I think is about 20 minutes with her uh, which is going to go on Patreon uh, very soon for the people who support the podcast financially. The, there's an extra bit where I ask people the same six questions, which is, uh, what's the most embarrassing thing you've ever done as a... No, what's the, blah, blah, blah. what is the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? What's the stupidest thing you did as a teenager? Do you have a life hack, an unpopular opinion? Uh, what do you wish people knew about you? And a recommendation for something. And I have to say, her unpopular opinion was incredible like it was so important and part of me was like oh I should have had this in the main chat but then another part of me was like no this is the this is the sort of stuff that the patrons of the podcast should get because it's so good it was so good it was so important and I was so 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 happy that we had that chat and I felt like I learned so much from her so I would just like to let you know that uh that I hope you enjoy <laughs> I hope you enjoy this episode I have a book out called Happy Fat I'm doing my show in Edinburgh please come and see it I'm also doing the Edinburgh Book Festival and now you have every excuse in the world to not go to that because I I was personally invited by Rennie Edolat and I didn't go and I'm not even personally inviting you I'm I'm just asking like a big group of people so you should you, you don't have to go if you feel tired you don't have to go because I couldn't go, <laughs> you know? Anyways, please enjoy this episode with the incredible person that is Rennie Edo-Lodge. Well, first of all, for people who, I mean, that sounds weird, I think most people know who you are by now, but if someone does know who you are, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Rennie Edo-Lodge. I'm an author, former jobbing journalist, podcaster, some public speaking. I wrote a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which was uh, a bestseller in the summer of 2018. Where are we meeting you right now? Where, in, in your life, career-wise, emotional-wise, just right now in this moment, where are you at in your life? Where are we meeting you? I think, well... You made me at a good place to ask me questions because uh, the last two years were very intense and um, I'm at a point where I'm accepting and settling into where my, my new life, essentially, and I'm also at a point where I've got hold of um, things that were making me unhappy and worked, worked on those, worked on my mental health problems, worked on my boundaries, um, so you're meeting me at a good point and a, a, a bit of a reflective point as well, I think. Yeah, that's nice. Um, what's the? I think boundaries is such a big thing at the moment. For I feel like we're getting quite, we're becoming quite aware of the importance of them for ourselves, especially if you do any kind of activism or, well, at the moment it's just anything you say out loud or exist in the world. What's been your work with boundaries? How's that? I think, um, you know, I was kind of in, I was doing public work for a while as a jobbing freelance journalist, and we all have our own definitions of success. But for me, 
I was successful in that I was doing the work that I wanted to do, but unsuccessful in terms of earning a living. I wasn't really making much. And then the book blew up. And, uh, you know, I already had details out there. And let's just say my intray was very overflowing. It was very overwhelming for me. And I had to either work on boundaries and decide what I thought my obligations were or essentially drown under all of those demands on me. So that meant redefining my understanding of the work that I was doing and managing other people's expectations of me, I think, you know. So there was a point last year where I literally just changed my number, changed my email address, made it um, so that I could start feeling a little bit more in control of of the work that I was doing, you know, because I'd been involved in activism and writing for a very long time. And uh, I think there's an element of doing that work publicly that leads to a sense of people's ownership over you. And um, I spent, let's say, the last year really working on making sure that I didn't feel owned by anybody. Even if I don't think it was necessarily coming from a bad place, I just think that, you know, my name popped up on, on people's radars and they were like, oh, this girl could help us solve our problems. And I did a lot of internal and external work to make it clear that, I am a writer and that's about it, <laughs> you know, like I'm not, I can't come into your workplace to do diversity training. I can't come to this, that and the other and inspire you. I can't meet you for a coffee just because you've read my work. Uh, I can't do any of those things. And if I do start trying to overstretch myself to do all of those things, I can't stick to the one thing that I know I'm good at, but not only that, that I know that I'm passionate about, which is the writing, um, you also meet me at a point where, you know, like I said before, I've settled into um, the life that I'm living now. I'm prioritising and setting up the infrastructure of of what my life looks like now um, in order to have a bit more of a secure future, I think. Yeah. yeah. How have you had to... Have you had to deal with... I'm going to explain why I'm asking this. So I remember learning to say no to things from a therapist um, some years ago. I remember saying, well, I'm so scared of setting boundaries because why do people then get angry? And I was expecting her to say, no, don't worry, but of course I'm not going to get angry. She was like, oh, yeah, people will get angry because you've been saying yes so much. And that's become your, that's what people expect from you. So the second you start saying no, they think they've done something and they think you're angry with them. So they will react to that. You just have to get through that moment of people being a bit upset with you until they realize, oh, no, that's just who you are now. So my question was going to be, have have you had to deal with any reactions to you beginning to set boundaries? I think that this has been happening for a while, whilst I was a jobbing freelance journalist, um, you know, and I was still doing activism. I remember one time um, a university society had asked me to go over and speak to them for Black History Month. This was years ago. And, um, and I was like, yeah, I'll go. I'll literally travel um, and come to speak to you for free even though I was earning like very little money at the time. But I think there's this thing with activism where people think, well, you care about what you're doing, so you'll just do it for free and lie down on the floor and people will walk on you because you're a rug. Um, And anyway, so some paid work came up, which, you know, ultimately, like in my life priorities, being able to pay the rent is high up there. So I had to cancel on these folks and say, I'm really sorry, but, you know, some paid work's come up and you're not offering payment for this, so I have to prioritise paid work instead. And they got really upset with me and said, oh, well, we've already printed the posters. I was like, sorry, 
you know, um, like, so there certainly have been examples in early on in my writing career. More recently, I mean, things have changed significantly. Um, there have been times where I think having written the book that I've written, and particularly because it's in first person, some people feel that they've been camped out in my head for a bit. And what you've read out of my work is, it's certainly a my reflections, but it's not quite you having a one-on-one conversation with me. And so you aren't entitled to have coffee with me, you know, unless I already know you. Like, I don't think that that's unfair, you know. Some people have been upset. I have received the odd tweet here and there, but I just ignore it, you know. Yeah. Do you you also get the people sending you... um, So what I get is, like, people sending me these... Uh, fat phobic adverts or fat phobic articles and they're like see you'll care about this or can you post something about this and you're like please don't send me or like tweets about me from some horrible person they're like look at what this person said about you oh um that doesn't happen because well i just changed all of my social media settings so that the people who feel inclined to do that can't that's mad but also i think again early on in, in in me getting off the ground with writing sometimes friends and family would do that And I would say to them, why are you sending me stuff that I wouldn't seek out, you know? Like, do you want me to tell you when Karen from HR is bitching about you? (laughs) No, you don't. So why would you do that to me, you know? It may seem interesting to you, but I don't want to... So I had some frank conversations with friends and family, for sure, yeah. Do you see your life as a pre-book, post-book? Because it must have... Something must have exploded for you, right? With, With the book being such a huge success as it was. Do you... Do you see it as a turning point of some sort? Um, I think, like, externally, there's been change. Internally, like, the uh, the things that I'm passionate about and the things that I've, write, I've been writing about haven't really changed for about seven years. It's just that after publication day, it was signal-boosted to a much broader audience than it had been previously, you know? which I think then led me to take some of the attention with a pinch of salt because, you know, I was so used to not getting any attention that I was like, what's all this about? I don't trust it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I don't know about pre or post book, but I mean, I think I've certainly changed in the last two years a lot. I think I've matured. I think I've become more comfortable, you know, like it's like I was given, I don't know, a new coat and I've just sort of got comfortable in it or something. Um, but I think some of that's just growing up and I w- I happen to be put under a significant amount of different types of pressure over the last two years that forced me to grow up that was somewhat accelerated by my career success. But that would have happened, I think, over the sp- space of 10 years if I hadn't had career success, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, is that... Do, do you feel listened to? Do you feel like you're... Because I feel like the original blog post that was the reason behind the book or was the, what do you call that, like ground point from the book um, had such a feeling of... I don't you know, know extreme what, frustration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, yeah, exactly, that feeling. Do you feel like it's... Is it somehow therapeutic to have more people read your words and know that or do you feel like people are still not listening? Or do you feel, is there something that's changed in your the way you go about the world because more people have actually listened to you? 
Well, I think I, first off, I'm wary of the word therapeutic because, you know, I do therapy and therapy is very different from writing a book, you know. Yeah. <laughs> writing a book, as you know, is is editing, polishing um, and careful selection. And I sometimes think that women's writing is more described as therapeutic than, than men's, you know. So um, almost as though it's messy and confessional like therapy and writing a book is certainly not that. But I mean, I don't I just wanted to add that I don't think that's mm. what you were suggesting. But, you know, certainly I did feel unheard during all my time job as a jobbing freelance journalist doing little commissions here and there, blogging and activism, you know, up until very recently to be an activist was to be maligned and ignored, you know, so I certainly felt unheard. And I can say now that I'm no I no longer feel unheard. For me, publication day two years ago was like a release. It was like, oh, OK. This is the things that I've wanted to say for a very long time. This is the contribution I've wanted to make to the public conversation about these issues. It's done, you know, um, that little did I know the real work began <laughs> after that day. Um, but yeah, uh, so I certainly feel heard. But then also that links into just the dynamics of my life changing dramatically since the book's been published. So I'm like objectively in a more comfortable position um, now than I was then. And that sense of security is going to make me feel more comfortable. You know, I've moved tax bracket. You know, I have financial security for the next few years. I've, I'm established um, in my career and secure in my career. Um, and yes, there's been some sort of scrambling to get the infrastructure for what that new reality means for me. Um, but... You know, I'm now bona fide middle class um, to the extent that Tory, some Tory policies may benefit me. And that's something that I didn't think was ever going to be a possibility for me in my life and not something that I was aiming for. Um, but it means that you have a less sense of you have less of a sense of urgency in life, you know, than when I was very much maligned. It, like politically wise and also career wise, you know. Um, and certainly there are some levels of access to privilege that I'll never be party to, but I'm certainly far more comfortable uh, than I once was, you know. So all of that leads to a sense of comfort. And and I, you know, recognise the uh, inherent sort of contradiction in it. In writing a somewhat n radical narrative, it's made me established and comfortable, you know, that's, it's led me to that position. Um, and to some extent, I don't feel the same sense of extreme urgency around, well, you know, it's like I'm still dealing with racism as I do in everyday life, but I'm not living on the edge of poverty anymore, unlike the majority of people who are not white in this country. And so I'm not feeling that the sharp edge of some of the, uh, of the issues that I wrote about, about, like, I think people who read the book can tell that I was really feeling those issues, you know. It, of course, throws up a bit of a challenge for me for, you know, whatever comes next, because, you know, there's still things that I'm going to be super passionate about, but some of the financial aspects of inequality I'm now becoming distant from, and that's weird. But then I guess, like, this is just a challenge for people on the left in general, isn't it? It's like, when you're poor and on the left, you're envious, but when you're comfortable and on the left, you're a champagne socialist, so you, you can't really win. <laughs> so does it affect? Do you? Well, do you, would you still say you do activism? 
well, you know, the book kept me incredibly busy. Um, Wouldn't you say that? Isn't that, isn't the book, the book's an activist piece of work, isn't it? Yeah, I think some people would yeah. say that. It's not the activism that I started with, you know. What was that? Well, it was more community-based, you know, and um, writing and publicity of that writing by its nature is pretty much a solo endeavour, you know. So it's not the activism that I feel I started with. I'm sure that it's worked out as um, a point of reference for many communities, many anti-racist communities, but... I think in other ways it's um, worked to isolate me, you know, in some of those changes that I've just discussed, but also more socially, you know, having worked relatively unknown for so long, it it works a bit as, as a barrier between me and other anti-racist activists. Um, even if they love the work, there's still a idea of who I am before they get to know me, so... That's weird. That's weird, you know. Do you think you'll ever forget how it feels to be like on the edge of public? Like I had a, um, I had because I don't know the, this country that well, so I had a fuck up with taxes where basically I thought there was a bit of it that was um, I didn't have to pay, but I did. <laughs> it turns out it's not. It's mandatory. But um, so I got, and they hadn't got my new address. Something, something had gone wrong, so I got a phone call from a debt collector. And it was fine. Like, I could pay it immediately, so I was very lucky in that way. But the phone call was so threatening and so uncomfortable, and I was immediately thrown back into, you know, how it felt when I was younger and way, way, way more poor. And I immediately got thrown back to how my mother felt her entire life, basically, like, always struggling with bills and and. I had this weird out-of-body experience of remembering, like, oh, oh yeah, I remember how this feels now, this constant worry or constant anxiety about what's going to happen next month or, you know, it's the end of the month, we're running out of money, how will we eat? And I was kind of surprised at how how rarely I think about that in day-to-day life. Do you, do you feel yourself? Mm, do you still think of it? Do you still remember how it felt? I think that I've, I'm never going to forget, you know, Uh, just recently I did a no-spend challenge. Mm. Um, I decided to try not to spend that money for a week. I lasted like four days, mm. like superfluous money. And I, even when I was doing this no-spend challenge, I thought to myself, wow, like my idea of no-spend now is so different from what it once was because, you know, in order to do the work that I wanted to do, I had to, in the past, it meant foregoing, even getting public transport. Like I used to bike everywhere, take a packed lunch everywhere. But now, you know, the no spend that I just did over the f the last week inv involved staying in a hotel for work and getting the festival organizers to pay for room service for me. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, <laughs> and so it's a very different, you know, I'm just in a totally different class position. I'm never going to, I don't think that I will ever forget. There's just more of my life has has been a point of comparison to this moment. And maybe in 20 years' time, I'll be further and further away. But right now, like, most of my adult life was struggling. And a small minority of my adult life has been comfortable. So I'm never going to stop comparing to the point when I was struggling and being like, wow, stuff's really changed. I'm in an incredibly fortunate place. Yeah, it's true. I still have my mother's voice in the head in my head whenever I go grocery shopping anywhere. I'm like, take the cheap option. You have to take the cheap mm -hmm. option. I'm like, yeah. In my head, I'm going, but mom, it's just 10p. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I don't think I'm going to 
don't think I'm going to forget, but it certainly is strange, you know, because the work that I was doing, I think people who engage with it can tell that it wasn't really ever financially motivated and it just so happens that the stars have aligned. (laughs) And I'm a bit like, well, I didn't really expect to be in this position. I really thought that in order to do this work that I'd be earning very little for the foreseeable and I was happy and comfortable with that. (laughs) And so, you know, to go back to the top of our conversation, I've just spent the last two years adjusting to what my life is now and be like, okay, I guess this is this is how you're living now. <laughs> you have to get an accountant and a bookkeeper right now, <laughs> you know. How, do you know what made you, I mean, that's a huge question, isn't it? What made you who you are, I guess, but I've, I find it very interesting to talk to people who have done activism or who do activism, but what, because an activist is, I guess, essentially someone fighting, you know, like trying to make the world a better place in some way. And what, and a lot of people don't do that for various reasons. So what made you the person who chose to do that, if that makes sense? Well, you know, like I said, I've, I'm feeling reflective. And, you know, for me, I, having reflected on my family dynamics, um, it's quite clear to me that the reason that autonomy and liberation in general have always been very important concepts to me socially is because that wasn't something that was, um, you know, free, freely available in, like, my household growing up and I think that um you know I look back and I often felt quite suffocated I honestly think it's a a Nigerian parents thing somebody will disagree but I think a lot of people who grew up in African households can can resonate with this idea of like parents basically like your your parents possessions frankly you know um and so on reflection I can really see how those fundamentals of autonomy and liberation and silent prejudice like resonated with me of course when I first started my activist journey I didn't make those links but now I can see that you know those are things will always be important to me you know um that people can achieve their potential without feeling without being not even feeling being shackled by social forces that are trying to keep them down were you were you you aware that there were people fighting do you remember when you became aware of the fact that there were people in the world fighting against the system I, like I remember making my mom uh, find books for me in the library about social justice movements and Malcolm X and I was super I remember being six years old being super excited by the idea that there were people out there who didn't just conform in mm. a way well um I didn't have quite the same journey, but I do remember feeling very frustrated by my position as a teenager, you know, as a teenage girl, being on the receiving end of street harassment and people just being like, oh, that's just sort of the way that things are. And then when I was at university, you know, I did English literature, so we had a critical theory module. I came across feminist texts. Sorry if I'm speaking in a very, like, didactic way here, but I've gone over this story many times in interviews came across um, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex and I was like, this is speaking to me um, in terms of how she conceptualised what it was like to live in this world as a woman when you're considered like an adenum of men. (laughs) And like, I think in my teenage years in particular, you know, I was like, I mean, there was no meaningful conversation about feminism in culture, but I did feel sometimes like prey walking down the street, you know, Um, so what I did after I read that 
that excerpt of that book was just go online and Google Feminism UK. And then um, I came across a website called The F Word, which is still going, about UK feminism. And then I just started to try and go to meetups of feminists. And that's basically how I, I became aware that people were fighting, I suppose, or pushing back against some of those social forces that I that I had a problem with, but didn't seem like anybody else had a problem with it. And some people were even playing up to it. So I think this becomes relevant now. So I have a question that I always ask, and I think it's so, so relevant for you particularly, um, because you've, you mentioned you've gone over a lot of these things before in interviews. So, and I can... I don't even know if I can think of questions that you've probably never been asked. So the question I always ask um, is this. Uh, what question would you most want for me to ask you? You see, I never really have an answer for this one, you know. Oh, oh my God, you've been asked that as well before. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so heck. There's nothing original. <laughs> no, it's okay. Maybe I'm doing too many interviews. That's the issue. You know? <laughs> yeah, set a boundary, please. <laughs> No, I guess the question is really, what, what would you love to talk about? What, what would you actually like to talk about? Well, I think that, um, you know, I mean, obviously this conversation is between you and me and it's not specifically about my work, but about me as a person. But I think questions around my work in general focus more on the content and, and not on the form. And I do see myself as a writer first and foremost. That's like the thing that I was doing before activism. That was the thing I was doing before feminism, before anti-racism and... And I think that part of the reason my work is what it is is because I have a real passion for writing. And I do find it frustrating that fiction writers get to are asked about their writing process or about sex, sentence structure or, or form, and I'm not. I feel a bit jealous of, that they get asked about those questions sometimes. I know they get bored of those kind of questions, but, you know, I take a lot of pride in being able to turn out a good sentence and... Um, And it's frustra it's it is annoying that I don't get asked about form, sentence structure, or even narrative, you know, because nonfiction needs a good narrative to drive it forward, you know. You have to first and foremost be a good storyteller and that's personally why I don't read lots of nonfiction because sometimes I feel like people can't tell stories, it's just too too facty, you know. So it would be nice to be asked a little bit more about creativity you know do you remember the first thing you wrote oh I used to write stories and stuff when I was a child yeah, yeah. so I can't remember the first thing but um I had a parent send me um pictures of a of a book that I wrote when I was like four or five it was about um it was a picture book my mum had taken the pictures and I wrote the story of us going out to the shops to buy the ingredients to make a cake and then making the cake Yes, that's amazing. My first book. <laughs> uh, um, what do you think uh, drives you to writing? What do you think it is about writing? Um, it's just the way I express myself, really. You know, for me, it's about it's about expression, and I think for me, like getting clarity around my thoughts, because the writing starts in my head first. You know, the working out out how to put it together. Um, starts in my head first and then I sort of clean it up on the page you know so yeah I don't know when I was doing the scripts for the, for the podcast that felt like a very that felt even more so than writing the book like like creativity actually because it involved snippets of interviews as well so literally structuring 
to me, that's a a big form of creativity, the structure and the form and the creating the narrative. Yeah, I was really surprised when I heard your podcast because it was so unlike most podcasts I've ever heard. Because it did, yeah, like narrative is the is the word for it. I was like, oh my god, this is a full piece of art is a big word for a podcast episode but you know it's like it it's not just like me trying, you know pressing record and now we're just having a chat like there was thought through it there was like a do you, do you want to introduce it just in case people haven't oh yeah so it's called about race and it's for me the aim was really inspired by american public radio like npr or perhaps this american life it was really like for me it was about putting together an audio feature you know i was a jobbing journalist so I was very familiar with writing newspaper features. And for me, it was about doing that in audio form. And so that, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted it to sound like. Just like with the book, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted it to look like as a whole, you know, in terms of the structure and the narrative that I wanted it to follow. So what's your creative process? How do you create? Do you have any rituals you do? Do you have any, are there any spaces in which you you feel more creative than, than others? Um, well, as I've said before, I have an idea of of what I want it to look like in the end form initially, you know, and uh, it usually ends up like that, you know, and it's it's usually hard to explain to other people. Um, but, you know, so with the book, I was like, right, well, this is going to be, for me, I want to create something that fundamentally changes the way that we're talking about racism in this country, That was why, and so it it had to be persuasive. With the podcast, I wanted it to be explorative, not persuasive, right? So there's that. So I have an idea about it in my head, and then I'll go off and do research, and then I'll just make links between this, that, uh, that, that, and the other, you know? And the links will be things that I think are important and significant, which... I would probably have to explain to somebody else why I think that point links to that point or why that snippet of interview should go there. Um, yeah, see, it doesn't really make much sense when I'm saying it out loud, but in my head it, it's clear. And then more generally, like the subject matter, well, my head's always... I'm all, That sort of stuff's always sort of ticking in the back of my mind, the subject matter of the things that I'm interested in or want to cover or want to explore. It's always going on in the back of my mind. I had a uh, when I was reading your book. I one of the things that really struck me, or maybe surprised me, was how visual it was. Or how, and maybe it's just because you mentioned you mentioned so many places, places that I've been to. You know, um, uh, you were mentioning what was his name? Was it Moody? Someone called Doctor Doctor. Oh yeah, yeah, Howard Moody. Yeah. Um, and you were talking about the places he'd been and his practices and. And it just it it was almost like it built a new country on top of the one I thought I knew because I wasn't aware of so many of these things and I was wondering if knowing all these things and and having studied all these things um, does that affect the way you move through like physically move through the world do you see oh God this is gonna sound so wanky do you see the past when you move around or is that something you've kind of put into the box of the book and that's not part of your everyday? Um, I don't know if I see the part that I move around, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, but, um, it sounds like such a wingy question. I do, particularly in this time of accelerated gentrification, I do see fragments of 
of old and I wonder, oh, I wonder what that links to and what that, what that was about. So sometimes, you know, if you're on the bus going up um, Kingsland Road from the area of London where I live, which is like more the Seven Sisters end, if you're on the top deck of the bus, you can see a sign and it's um, a very old sign for a building that no longer does this business, but it was it's for like an anti-racism organisation and clearly the sign's from a good few decades ago. And I think to myself... I wonder what that was about, you know, I'll go off and Google it and not much will come up. And, you know, if I was in the process of writing the book at the time, I would go off and start going through archives or something to see things that um, connect to it, you know. So I suppose some things catch my eye, but usually when I'm moving around the world, I just have my head down. But actually, I haven't an answer to your previous question about the creative process. And I have a clearer idea, you know, I was saying I have an actual sentence to describe what this goes with this and that. It's like putting together a puzzle. So that's how it is for me. It's like I have the vision of what it looks like finished and then in order to build it with research or my own analysis, um, it's like putting together the pieces of a puzzle, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, the way I relate to that is um, when I write shows, I've always had to, when I try to explain that to people, how I do that, it's always in colours. I can sort of see if the show doesn't work. It's almost like there's a, yeah, like you said, it's always hard to explain this. And I was like, oh, there's like a bit there that doesn't fit in with the other colors. So I have to make that into, the, the colors have to match. And, the, and I can't, I don't know what the colors are. I don't know how they relate to the jokes, but it ha- everything has to connect in the right way, in the right order. And I can't explain why things are in the right order, but this is definitely how it has to be. Then it just feels right. And that's also how I remember it for an hour because well this bit comes out of that bit obviously because you can look at the colors like that and I was kind of getting the same kind of vibe from when you describe it of like this is mainly in my head and I'm not really sure how it comes down on paper yeah definitely which is always a bit of a challenge when you then have to work with other people about it because then you have to explain yourself which I don't like doing was was that the um I was about to ask how do you work with people are you good with having an editor having someone I do like working with an editor, um, but that's, it's, I think writing a book is a very solo endeavour, so you're left to your own devices until your editor comes in and says, okay, well, this, this, that and the other, if you have a good editor, of course, and I had the fortunate luck of working with a great editor who was willing to challenge and push me, because whilst I have an overall idea of what I want it to look like um, in the end... I think it's really important to work with somebody who's in your corner and will push your own assumptions um, to get there. I mean, in answer to your question, do I work well with others? Like in a more closer um, team, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> with a podcast, I think it was a bit of a challenge, but overall I, am, I really thought the, you know, I sought creative input from the people I was working with on the podcast as well, and I think that their creative input ultimately made it better you know because there's only so much I know I only have so many reference points which will inform how I want to put the puzzle together so it's good to get some external reference points for sure are you a perfectionist well yeah but I'm working on it you know as in as in you you think it's not a a good thing to be yeah I don't think it's a good thing yeah you know with the work that I've put out into the world so far the more the higher profile work Yes, it's my perfectionism that made it the work that it is, you know. Um, And I wouldn't have put any of that stuff out if I wasn't happy with it. And overall, I am really happy with it. But for example, I remember listening back to finished episodes of the podcast and 
getting feedback from friends and family who are like, oh, that was a really interesting point. But I was, my perfectionist brain was like, technically that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you know, that audio is slightly too loud. Okay, I need to chop up that interview, <laughs> you know. And so that perfectionism can actually override uh, a sense of accomplishment, you know. Um, with the book, there's still some, there are, Looking back, I'm like, well, this could have changed and that could have changed. But if I focus on that, that's going to override a sense of accomplishment and a sense of that's finished. So perfectionism definitely pushes me to do my best. And ultimately, like having been in this industry for a couple of years now, ultimately, I think it's a good it's a good trait to have because some people are really half assing it out here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and I take a lot of pride in having a vision and executing it and not half-arsing it for the money, especially when the more established you get, the more people offer you money to half-arse it. <laughs> and I'd, I'm not a fan of that. But at the same time, I think perfectionism can can hinder progress and lead to procrastination and and stop you from letting things alone and stop you from celebrating your successes. So I'm trying to, and also I think that it can seep into the smaller things in life and you can start thinking, oh, I'm a failure if I haven't done this small inconsequential thing perfectly, you know? So it, it leads to a lot of pressure on yourself. So I'm just trying to renegotiate my relationship with perfectionism to make sure that, um, that it's healthy for me. Mm. So you, did you say you're in therapy now? Mm -hmm. how's that it's going okay yeah. I mean I think that that's led me to the point I am now where I can really sort of like settle and accept where I'm at and and enjoy it you know buy myself nice things <laughs> and uh so I think I had to go on into therapy because I found like the reception to the book so overwhelming that it made me very anxious you know um because it kind of felt like my life had changed around me and isn't like when I was doing all the publicity for the book you kind of know that yes if you do this then people will see it but then people come up to you in the street and you're like who the fuck is this <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> what is going on here why have I lost my privacy why can I not sit in a cafe and meet a friend without somebody coming over um so I had to deal with that overwhelm frankly because it was driving me loopy um And I was really struggling with the very full inbox and demands on my time. And it was difficult to, sometimes when I feel super overwhelmed, it's hard to prioritize. It's hard to, to work out what's important and what's not. And sometimes when you can't prioritize, you can get distracted with small things and forget about the most important things. Right. So I did a round of CBT and, and I remember like speaking to the CBT guy that's what I call him in my head the CBT guy I can't remember his name and he was and I was like yeah well people want me to do this and this and this and that and he's like but what have you actually agreed to Benny when you wrote this when you started on this book what did you actually agree to do I was like I was like what did I sign a contract for it was just to write and deliver a book that's it <laughs> none of all these other requests I'm not contractually obliged to do any of these things he's like you don't have to do it <laughs> I was like Okay, I won't. <laughs> it was a good sort of like reminder, you know, that because I think that, you know, with the issues that I was writing about in the book, it's super emotive and it, a lot of people care. And at the time when the book was published, there weren't a lot of people publicly saying these things. 
even though I think the book captured a mood that many people had, and my experience in activism was that lo- the people around me cared deeply, it was like that care from people who hadn't seen it being spoken about publicly before. They directed it to me, and they, I was like, I'm just one literal person. Like, I cannot do all of these things that you're asking me to do. I, like, there's even a thing on my website's frequently asked questions that says, if you're thinking about reaching out to me to be here, there, or ever, or the thing you're organising, I, I, I put, look in your local area, there will be somebody working on these issues, much closer to home and much more available, you know. Less spread the love, you know, because I cannot take that load. Um, so CBT really just helped me prioritise and bring my shoulders down because, like, my shoulders were always up by my ears and I felt very overwhelmed. And it really got to the point where I couldn't enjoy the success I was having, because I was just like, when will this end? <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> yeah, sometimes when you say reflective, that's, I feel like you can only feel reflective when you have some space, mm-hmm. right? Just some brain space and time, some, okay, what's actually happening? Where am I? Like ground yourself a bit and go, okay, what do I want to do? And you can't do that if you're constantly one thing after the other. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So it's been good to have some space and and settle into it. And, you know, at at the time I met people who essentially did the same thing as me, but were 10 years deep into their careers. And I was like, how are they so happy and relaxed? (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) Um, But it's, yeah, so that was good for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the whole you don't owe anyone anything is just a universally amazing piece of advice. Because I think it's very hard to, I mean, maybe especially as a woman, to not feel that you have to take care of everyone. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've never been a, I've never had much of a maternal instinct. So I can't say that I felt I owed people stuff. And I also think that sometimes this rhetoric of, um, shunning obligations can go a bit too far and people can start moving like sociopaths <laughs> saying fuck everyone and uh, I think that there's a balance to be struck right you know ultimately I had to just work out what are my obligations and where are the where is it that the demand is actually unfair and unreasonable on me and where is it fair you know so <laughs> this is the thing about boundaries when you set your own then you can respect other people's and you can also see when people are stepping on yours you know so um, well, it was just about working out what was important to me and the book's success led to offers of opportunities and I went through a process in my own head of working out you know why am I doing this I mean I've always had a clear idea of the kind of work I want to do and where I want to be um, so it wasn't difficult to work out why I was doing it but sometimes there were ex- there were forces in my life saying, well, you should take this opportunity just because it's there. And it was, I was, it was me essentially saying, but that's not the route I want to go down. I don't want to take that. I don't want to do that career. And if I wanted to do that career, I would, I would go there. You know, for me, all the thing, the only thing I wanted to do is be able to write for a living and I'm there. So I'm, I'm not, you may consider this to be leveling up, but I don't, you know, I see that as a distraction from what I'm really interested in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that thing about obligation with readers, of course, it's delicate because 
when I re- meet incredibly passionate readers, I recognise that it's the, their passion who put me in this position, you know? And so I will always stop and chat to people on the street within reason. Like, if I'm trying to go somewhere or I need to be someone half an hour, I can't be chatting for 20 minutes, do you know what I mean? But working out what my obligation meant and what my boundaries were meant I'll have a conversation with you and then I'll be like, I need to go, you know, rather than there was a time when I felt like I had to stay there until this person had finished speaking for three hours. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Or sometimes it would be like, look, I I can't sign a book now. It's just not the right time. Or I'm literally walking into a toilet cubicle. So no, I can't chat, (laughs) you know, like, so it's a delicate one, right? Like, it doesn't mean that I can't not do those things. It just means that it's just taking more control over how I'm doing them, you know. Um, And I also thought that on this issue of obligation and demand on me, that if I was saying no, then I would always try, or at least as much as I could, try and just suggest other people who could could do it. Because one thing about being involved in anti-racist work for some time is that I knew lots of people who were talented but weren't getting national recognition like I was so I'd be like oh go to that person and this or go to that person so it was also about to some extent and I think I didn't always succeed at it but I tried to spread the work and and spread the love as much as I could it's a it feels like a very dark time at the moment and I'm also very aware of the kind of privilege behind saying that um because it's always been dark in many ways um how are you feeling about the world at the moment? I mean, the the book had such a huge impact and was so good and felt like it really did change a lot of the the way we speak about racism. And then now it's, you know, the Nazis are getting more and more visible. Yeah, I guess what are your thoughts on, on that? I don't know. I mean, what can I say that you haven't on that? You know? <laughs> No, I guess, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's obviously very bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I don't think I was expecting <laughs> any other... Yeah, I don't even know really what the question is. I guess the question is just kind of... Okay, so this is a question then. Are you... What are you working on? Are you working on anything now? What's your next big project? And is it... Yeah, that's the question. We can always talk about okay, <laughs> well, into it. Okay, well, I would say there isn't one at this moment in time. Yeah? Yeah. Is that part of your dealing with the mental health stuff? And well, I feel like I'm feeling intellectually curious, and there could be one probably before the end of this year, but I had to do a lot of work to get to the point where I was intellectually curious, frankly. Yeah. You know, because I felt very overwhelmed, and there was going to be no... Well, actually, I work pretty well under pressure, but it's not good for me. So I'm feeling intellectually curious, but also now I have the time to be able to read and research at my leisure. So I'm I'm in no rush, frankly. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah. Um, let me think. I think it's just about because it's it's weird, isn't it? Because you've had your own I don't like the word journey, but I guess it's like a journey through, like having written the book and having had this huge effect on people, and then also learning about your own space and your own boundaries. And that sort of you and your space, and then the world is happening on the outside of that, which seems to be getting uh, 
the 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 horrors are getting very visible to everyone it was certainly bad timing i mean i think if i wanted to i could have taken the political commentator route because that was offered to me to just be on tv saying things are racist over and over again on breakfast tv and that's a decision that i decided i don't want to do that you know i had my own personal work to do it's bad timing that I had to go through that personal journey, but frankly, I feel I've made my contribution to the public discussion at this point. I don't feel I need to be on TV saying, that's bad, and that's bad, and that's bad. Here's my op-ed about how this is bad. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But also, I'm in the position where I don't need to, you know, because yeah. that's some people's legitimate living, and I'm not looking to dismiss it. Um, yeah, I mean, it is... I mean, for me, I think that, like, the work that I'm trying to do is proactive and long form and thoughtful and part of that is not responding in the moment so I'm watching what's happening in the world with a sense of being disturbed like everybody else and it it will inform whatever comes next you know the work that I do is always going to be political it's going to be a political response to the world that we're in but you know having you'll have read the book so you know that a lot of that was a political response to the recent past to stuff that happened five years ago you know and for me in my head to make sense of this moment means digesting it a bit you know Mm. so the question I always ask at the end of this podcast is this so you're in the delivery room and you have just been born so Tanya Rennie is crying and crying because she was just in the womb and it was very nice, warm and comfortable and quiet. And now there's lights and sounds everywhere and it's all very scary. And she's looking at you like, what is this? Is, is this going to be life? Because this is, seems horrible. Why is this a thing? And you know how her life is going to be from the moment she's born to the moment where you're sitting in front of me right now. And you can't change anything. So anything you tell her to do won't mean anything because she can't change anything. It's going to happen exactly the way it's happened up until this point. But you can say something about What's it going to be? How is it going to be? Because she's looking at you wondering what are we, what, what's going to happen to us. So what would you say to teeny tiny baby you? I'd probably say something like, you know, don't quit, you know, because there certainly have been some times over the last decade where I was very close to just packing it all in and trying to do something a bit more conventional because it wasn't working until it did work, you know. And, um, I mean, I didn't, but it would have been good to get some external reassurance. I mean, I did have people in my life who were like, you know what, we believe in what you're doing, um, regardless if the rest of the world doesn't. And those people have been proved right, but they were always a bit of a minority. And it would have been nice to know myself during those times when I was like, you know what, actually nobody else cares, with, cares about what I've got to say. <laughs> To, to know that it would work out, so don't quit. That's very cliche, isn't it? You know, don't give up. It's cliche for a reason, isn't it? It's good. Yeah. Do you still need to be told that sometimes? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I don't feel like packing it in now, you know? So I feel established. Um, I think that, you know, we spoke about perfectionism, And, um, you know, when I was writing Why I'm, I had... The perfectionism was, I want this to be the absolute best that I can do at this moment in time with what I know. And uh, perhaps 
oh, I should tell baby me um, to drop the perfectionism or something. Or because that at the moment is getting in the way of any of my ideas getting to fruition at the moment because sometimes I'm like, oh, well, maybe just do anything. But then I'm like, is it the right thing, though? <laughs> you know, is it the right thing? Because the truth is with why I'm, which is if I didn't already say now, it's my abbreviation for the incredibly long 10 word title of my book. <laughs> um, I had this compulsion and drive that this was the thing that was going to be my life's work. This is what I was going to dedicate my energy to and to hell with any other form of employment. Um, and then I achieved it. And I th at the moment, I'm just sort of like saying to myself, okay, you may not feel like that about any other project again. I mean, the book didn't end racism, which was the general life goal of mine. <laughs> it didn't end racism. It certainly changed a lot of people's minds about racism and affirmed other people affirmed other people's existence in this world, right? But I think that level of youthful naivety and drive that I personally will change this country's conversation about racism, part of my maturing and growing as a person has been moving away from a sense that me alone can do things, you know? Uh, and it's also pretty individualistic. I think that, you know, if you read the book, you can... You can get a sense of that, actually, you know, that outsized belief in myself. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, part of what I'm doing now in my reflective stage is trying to work out whether or not I should wait until there's certain things in life that I feel passionate about. But do I feel like this is the one thing that I must say publicly for good? Do I wait until that comes along? because there's certainly things I feel passionate about, but do I feel that sense of urgency? Or do I just say, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's the only thing that you feel needs to be said ever. <laughs> if it's something that you're passionate about and something that you believe that should change, you should just pursue it, you know? That's really quite a roundabout answer to your question, which I've actually forgotten. <laughs> That's fine. That's perfect. Do you have anything else you want to say before we... I don't know. I'm not sure. I feel that this conversation has been unlike other interviews. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> Is that a good thing? Yeah, I think so. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I say it's more like a, it's like a profile of me as a person. Oh, I like that. Yes. I, like, I think that I, I never really ask people if they have anything to say at the end, but I felt like I wanted you to, maybe because of that, I wanted to, if there's anything you want to add, because if we've gone around a lot of different corners of you, and if there's anything you felt like, oh, also, I love puppies <laughs> something that you wanted to I do have a pet rabbit do you yeah Aww. she's a house bunny so that means she's not in a cage mm -hmm. oh that's wonderful it's very important because hutches are solitary confinement and they're cruel okay I just need to say that publicly yeah all right so you should have your rabbit in the house like a house cat okay they can be litter trained <laughs> they're very sweet very fluffy adorable and let their personalities flourish and thrive which you won't won't happen if they live in a cage or a hutch okay my public service announcement thank I you mean, <laughs> of all the things i was expecting from this chat i'm very i wasn't expecting wanting to be your house rabbit <laughs> when some people talk say oh what's the next book i say it'll be rabbit care <laughs> because i have a lot of strong opinions yeah, like it. did you know that rabbits are the third most neglected pet in this country i'm not surprised 
I feel like I've, I, I mean, I feel like every kid I knew when I was a child had like a rabbit they didn't care about. Exactly. Well, first off, I mean, would you put a cat in a hutch? No, it's cruel. <laughs> so I've, I've, they're neglected because they're just put in solitary confinement and stuck in the back. You they're don't even develop big, a rela- exactly. You yeah. don't develop a relationship. Yeah. If you had a family member in a cage, you wouldn't develop a relationship <laughs> with them, would you? Very bad one. Release your anybody with a rabbit. Release them from the cage. Let them roam free in your house. There's loads of. You should go on. Um, look for the campaign. A hutch is not enough. It's uh, the rabbit. I think it's like the Rabbit Welfare Society. That's amazing. Develop a relationship with your pet rabbit. They're social creatures. They're gregarious. I love my rabbit. That's great. What's her name? Saffron. Saffron. Amazing. Yeah. So. That's that's the next book, Rabbit I'm Care. So excited. I have strong opinions. <laughs> I can feel it. it pains me. They're not they're not suitable pets for kids. Oh yeah. No. Oh, because the children are ruthless well, about them. You can't. Yeah, you. They're not cuddly toys. Yeah, that's true. They don't want to be cradled. They need to be close to the ground. They're prey animals. <laughs> that's what I want to say at the end of this interview. That's brilliant. Okay? That's so important. I'm so happy I got that. I'll show you some pictures later. <laughs> yes, please. I would love that. Okay. She's got a great personality. She's yeah. fantastic. They live for a very long time as well. Yeah? Yeah, mine's five years old. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> so that's mine. No, this is brilliant. I've never had okay. any kind of public service announcement about rabbits before, so I'm very happy. Well, you know, I don't often get the opportunity to speak about <laughs> my passion for rabbits publicly. No, but I'm, I'm glad I... I've provided that. And if there's anything else you want to add, I'm also here for that. Okay, well, that's it. That was the main thing. Good, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. You're um, very welcome. I was going to say, where can people find your stuff? But everyone... I don't know. You say everyone, but I yeah. don't know who's listening. Um, well, you can find my book in all good bookshops, I'm going to say. All good ones. Bad ones don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And um, that's my magnum opus. Is that the word? Um, yeah, you can find that in book, bookshops. And it's in paperback now, so you can get it at a nice affordable price. Uh, I am on social media, but I don't really engage on social media that much these days because I just think it's the whole, the whole place is a cesspit. Instagram's all right, but mostly it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you can find me on Instagram, Rennie Edo Lodge, all one word. Not much to see there, to be honest. I'm on Twitter. At Rennie Rennie, R-E-N-I, R-E-N-I. I don't really say much there, but you can hang out if you want. <laughs> I don't even respond to people anymore. <laughs> um, I have a website, rennieedolodge.co.uk. <sighs> yeah, that's it. Great. That's me. That's where you can you can find my work in the bookshop. You can find my social media on the internet. I don't think there's anything else I need to point people towards. Great. Thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. That was Rennie Edo Lodge. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope Rennie enjoyed that. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so nervous about her having a good time doing the podcast, but I, I always am. I always hope that people... There's been very, very, very few guests, but there have been guests where I've thought, you absolutely hate this and this is awful. <laughs> I'm sure that if you heard those episodes, you would feel the same way you'd think someone's not having a good time and I'm always scared that it's because of me but usually guests seem to have a really good time which is good so I hope uh that Rennie did as well she seems she's smiling so let's hope anyways I don't know why I'm fangirling so hard oh god damn it 
So uh, if you want the extra snippet, if you want to hear uh, more from Rennie, go and sign up for the on the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com forward slash Mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D. And you can hear some very exciting and very fun stuff with um, Rennie straight after, uh, straight after this. So do go on to that. You can sign up. You can decide how, how much you want to pay per episode. And then it just all happens automatically from then on. This is really great. And if you donate more than $5 per episode, yeah, it's dollars. I don't know what that is. In, I mean, it works fine if you're using any other currency, but let's go through it. $1 is 0.7 pounds. $5 is 3.9. It's 4 pounds, basically. So if you give four pounds per episode, uh, you can choose to become a friend of the podcast. You can also donate without becoming a friend of the podcast. It's not that complicated, but you, but if you choose to become, if you choose the, <laughs> what's it called? If you choose the benefits the uh, of being a friend of the podcast, you will get your name slaughtered at the end by me, because what do I know? Actually, it's fun. The people with the most normal names, they're the ones I... I regularly fuck up, but a lot of people with weird names have come up to me afterwards, and, uh, like after shows and stuff, and said, no one can ever, no one can ever pronounce my name, but you could pronounce that, but you couldn't pronounce like the most common name. So I don't know. You can choose what your name is on the page. Some people have taken advantage of that, I gotta be honest with you. So apart from having me slaughter your name at the end, you also get to hear me... Um, well, you also, I will never forget your name. I've now, I've been on tour now and I've been signing people's books and with quite a lot of people I've been like, oh, is that you? <laughs> you know, oh, of the people on the, on the, um, the people who are patrons I've met, uh, uh, I've met uh, Lily and Harry French. I have met uh, Cherry Winter. Um, oh God, who else did I meet? I think, oh God, now I'm, I feel like I met one of the Rachels. I've met so many, um, um, I've met so many people on tour and I'm like, oh my God, it's you. I know I've definitely met, at some point I think I've met, uh, well, Barry Norton, he was, he's been in some of my shows. I know that he, um, has recently moved to Denmark and is learning Danish and, <laughs> I mean, I think it's so exciting. Like, I just know some, I feel like I know so much about so many people uh, because of this. So, anyways, right. I'm now going to butcher the names of the friends of the podcast. So... Huge thank you to Andrea Papillon, Andrew January, Andy Walker. Definitely met Andy Walker. Uh, Ashley Salmon, Awesome Blue Sky, Barry Norton. Don't think we formally met yet, but he came to our show. Caitlin, Kat Posse, Kat Posse, of course I've met Kat Posse. She was a guest twice. Cherry Windsor, met her in, I think, Birmingham. Uh, Claire McCowell and Dono, Connor O'Donovan, Danny Beckett. I feel like I have met Danny Beckett. Daniel Reifersheet, Daphne Fanger, Eleanor, Emma Chan, Fenella Dunn, Privacy Osaurus, Aurora Tubbs, Fiona Richardson, Hannah Rose, Tristram. Uh, I definitely know Tristram from Twitter. Harry Van Dyke, Harry Minnett. I know Harry from Twitter. Heather Watson, Ida Sogolasen. I mean, I know most of these people from Twitter, so I'm just going to stop saying that. Janie Mahoney, Josie, Kathleen Gulmanson. I think I met Kathleen Gulmanson maybe in Birmingham as well, maybe. Kathy Draxabauer, I've met Kathy Draxabauer in London. Katie Hatfield, Katrina Ingalls, and Katie Travis. Uh, Kim Williams, Kirsten Davidson, Queen T, Lillian Harry French, met them in Birmingham. M Dash, Mari Fraser, Mansour Mia, Maketa Du Balova, Megan Roberts, Paul Swaddle, Perpetual Motion, Fia, Pierre Finner, 
Rachel Evenheim, Rachel Furley, Rachel Phillips, Ragdoll, Robert Knowles, Robin Capper, Sarah Ferreira, Eikerseth, Sarah Ellett, Sarah Pluma, Susie Tyler, and Victoria Layton. Yes, just a list of my friends. What a wonderful thing. Now, uh, thank you for listening. I hope we're, I think we're about to get back on track with the episodes coming out every Wednesday. Sorry for the whole shuffle around in the months I was touring. Uh, so thank you for being so patient. Thank you uh, to Rennie Edelage for doing this episode. Uh, thank you to Dave Pickering for producing this episode. To Kitty Edgar for doing the admin and the booking. To Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle. And to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo. And thank you to Bill Murray in London for letting me record episodes there. I will speak to you next week. Bye. Oh, oh.